0: Welcome, everyone, to our latest NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. I'm pleased to be joined by PAC-12 Commissioner Larry Scott and NCAA Chief Medical Officer Brian Hainline. Uh, Look, this is traveling at warp speed, dealing with COVID-19. The news is changing not just daily, hourly, uh, across the country. Obviously, we've had massive spikes in various parts of the country. Uh, Where I am in the Northeast, in New England, things are going very well, but that's not the case all over the country, or even within particular states where you are, Larry, in California. Uh, I wanna first deal with the latest news um, that broke overnight Wednesday night into Thursday morning about USC, which had sort of reversed course about its student population on campus, now pulling back and saying that they would actually have mostly online, maybe not exclusively 100% online. Uh, With that bit of news within your conference, how does that affect the possibility of fall sports and notably college football.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Appreciate the work you all are doing. Um, Yeah, we've said all along, there are a few gating principles uh, that would be first and foremost for us. Health and safety of our student athlete staff and the broader communities that they're part of. Our campuses uh, being open and feeling like they could bring back student athletes uh, and students more broadly in in a safe way. Um, And um, I think we've recognized all along, this is a very dynamic and fast changing environment. And we're gonna need to stay flexible and we're gonna need to let the data and the information um, lead us. And we've tried to be careful not to make decisions and lock in earlier than we need to because we realize we're learning a lot quickly. It's rapidly changing. And that's obviously been very true over the last few days and the last couple of weeks. So uh, yes, I've been in touch with our presidents of course, USC and UCLA for that matter. I actually have a son that goes to USC and was informed last night um, in terms of the change policies and the window has narrowed at both USC and UCLA in terms of the cohort of students that will be on campus. They've discouraged students from being on campus, except those that have an important reason to be there. There are many students that uh, work in labs, are doing research, are involved in the performing arts, and need to have hands-on experiences that will be on campus at the moment. And I think that leaves open the window for student athletes uh, if we decide to proceed.
0: Uh, One last thing before I get to you, Brian, about your conference um, and how much this has been changing. I mean, it was a month ago where it looked like Utah, you know, maybe Colorado, the two Arizonas, uh, you know, maybe the two Washingtons were going to be like, you know what, we're ready to go. And it was California schools before in that state, maybe Oregon, the two there that were like, wait a minute, we don't know where we are. And now the script has flipped a lot, you know, where the two Arizona schools are in, you know, areas where it's continued to spike. Uh, how has that been hard? I mean, how have you managed that roller coaster within your own league of how this virus has changed dramatically in in terms of affecting your campuses in various states. Well it's hard. It's hard intellectually,
1: emotionally, um, you know it's a very dynamic and fast changing environment. And I think it really underscores the need to be a flexible, nimble, and not get locked in to any kind of one position. We need to keep learning and understanding what's what's happening until the latest point where we have to make a decision, one way or another, Um, and we're trying to take baby steps, one foot in front of the other each time. We're learning a lot as we have student athletes voluntarily coming back for workouts. Frankly, our campus is learning a lot uh, by seeing how that experience is going. And you're exactly right. What we thought the narrative was a month ago is now very different. So I think for all of us uh, as leaders and important stakeholders in college sports, we were reminded, let's say flexible, nimble. No one can predict right now what the fall is gonna look like in my opinion.
0: And I'm gonna get to that deadline here shortly, but Ryan, um, there's been tons of news on voluntary players coming back in football. Uh, the majority of schools have reported, you know, the number of tests, how many positive. There's been some that have been great in terms of I think Maryland had no positive tests, maybe Indiana. Uh, and then there's the high spikes at places like Clemson and LSU. Uh, you and I have talked quite a bit over the last couple of months about this process. How much is the process working as these student-athletes are coming back to campus and being tested?
2: Well, Andy, I think one part of the process is working, in that as you're seeing the athletes return, they're being tested. they're identifying the positive cases. they're being placed in appropriate isolation and and so you know you it's it's really expected in this young population. we know there are are many that have minimal or no symptoms at all. so so that part of it's working, but the 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 issue going forward is, you know, are there going to be new cases? And, and and how do we continue to assess that situation and monitor it? I mean, we're at the easy part right now where athletes are coming in, they're relatively isolated and they their voluntary workouts. They can really physically distance, they can even mask. And so, so this part of it's working out okay in the setting of the country really worsening in many areas um but then i think over time as you start getting into more interactive type exercises that's when we'll understand even more if 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 this is working and that's in the setting of making certain that the local healthcare infrastructure can support what's happening so we have to really pay careful attention to that as well and it's not just for athletes it's for all students if you're on a campus and the local infrastructure can't support a, a sudden new surge then we have to reconsider things and as Larry said, we're, we're always going to have to be uh, nimble and flexible. So I want to get to the process because, especially with the hearings
0: on Capitol Hill, uh, there is a consistent, um, you know, misinformation about how the NCAA works, Larry. And you've been in there for quite some time. I and mean, you, you you were atop a professional sports league, you know, with the WTA, where you know um, you can have much more of a structure where there's someone at the top, You can maybe have a board or in some form of committee, this is our policy, you move forward. It's not built like that. Um, What is, at this juncture, in terms of any kind of uniformity, because everyone's crying out for uniformity, whether it's national or statewide, uh, if you can help educate people on how it actually works that... In the NCAA, you can't necessarily say, this is the way you're gonna test in every state, at every school, at every level.
1: Yeah, uh, well, a few elements. I mean, you know, every organization's unique. Um, uh, you know, college athletics, in a way is a microcosm of higher education. There's kind of a shared governance model. A lot of different stakeholders involved in the NCA is a membership organization, not just amongst division one, uh, but obviously, Division Two and Division Three, and there's a lot of um, you know, different shapes and sizes uh, of campuses throughout uh, the whole the whole country. Um, the membership comes together to try to make collective decisions. I think what's so challenging about this situation, in addition to some of the fundamental challenges an organization like ours has with uh, sometimes disparate interests, uh, different levels of resources, priorities etc. is this um, virus um, is iterating in different ways, um, in different locales. I know I've had to try to reorient my thinking, uh, working closely with our medical advisors to not think in terms of what's happening in this country, or even what's happening in our league. We're seeing vast differences as I'm Talking to our athletics directors, medical advisors, presidents in the experience right this moment in a place like Southern California, from Washington or Oregon or Colorado, um, so um, I'm you know not sure that one size will fit all in in the circumstance. And I think one of the uh, threshold considerations we'll have to make as we think about uh, fall sports uh, coming up is whether we stick with the traditional approach that we're either all moving forward together or none of us are moving forward together, whether that's within the league, within the FBS, Division I, or whether this is such a unique situation with really varied experiences and uh, situations at our campuses, uh, that there might be some where, you know, there's broad populations of students on our campuses and we can compete in college athletics and there might be some where we can't. I don't know what the answer to that will be, but uh, I think we're all trying to stay, you know, flexible and creative in our thinking, thinking about uh, student athletes first and foremost, uh, you know, most of whom are really eager Uh, to have the experience they've worked so hard for as part of their overall education. And so I think there's a lot of weighty considerations, but I think it's incumbent upon all of us, uh, and this is happening in so many different ways, Um, you know, the the new normal is going to be different from the old normal. I know we're experimenting, we're innovating, we're thinking of different modalities for how we operate, certainly our campuses are. And I think those of us that are involved in collegiate athletics need to be open to thinking about the different approaches possibly.
0: But who makes that decision about whether we're all in or we're all out?
1: Well, ultimately it's the presidents of our universities. I know that's the way it works in our league uh, with obviously heavy consultation from our athletics directors and steer uh, from commissioners. And then nationally through the committee structure that we've got, in the case of football, whether it's football oversight. Division I Council, and ultimately uh, the board of the NCA, which are our presidents. So it goes back back to the shared governance. Certainly if we're gonna do things nationally, that decision is going to have to be made at a national level through these NCA committees and the board. If we're unable to move forward nationally, um, or there are gonna be differences, then obviously that's where
0: conferences. That's my point that it's not just one person, it's still everyone involved. Um, Obviously, Brian, we have talked quite a bit about, and Larry, I want to get you this on the back end of this uh, how difficult football is. Uh, We know it's sort of the elephant in the room, and it's very difficult to sort of see how we can all make this work. What are the chances um, that the other sports, uh, Brian, uh, the other fall sports, soccer, volleyball indoors, but soccer outdoors, field hockey, Um, you know, golf, uh, excuse me, uh, um, uh, cross-country, you know, crew, these other sports, especially the ones that are outside, that those can happen And a lot of sports where the Pac-12 has got great success in, um, that those sports can happen with or without football occurring this fall. Brian, I'll start with you.
2: Well, I I, I think that's uh, a possibility. I mean, it really is going to be something that's going to play out within conferences so I think certain conferences will see which sports make the most sense that they can support Um, and even for certain member schools they're going to have to 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 get that figured out I think football there we're paying a lot of attention to that and um you know especially at the FBS level it's uh you know we we've had many many discussions about what are the ways that you can mitigate risk and it ranges on the one hand from how we're doing things day to day another strategy is testing another strategy is actually the use of facial shield where we've been talking about that an awful lot and 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 that remains another possibility that even helps to mitigate risk so so again just like as larry was saying this varies a- across the membership part of it is going to be where you are in the country part of it is what one can afford financially, and and an awful lot of it is gonna be a conference by conference decision.
1: Yeah, I would, um, in addition to everything Brian said, uh, is my personal observation at the moment from all the inputs I've got, is our ability to play sports in the fall. um, It it will have less to do with some of these sport by sport considerations. I've been so impressed by the work of our medical advisors our coaches, trainers, uh, I've got a high degree of confidence uh, from what I've seen already with, you know, voluntary workouts, then when our student athletes are in the athletic environment under supervision, there's going to be, you know, tremendous appropriate precautions taken in terms of sanitization, social distancing, mask wearing, um, robust testing, um, and I think they're really open questions about, you know, uh, whether the, the limited contact in sports is really going to transmit the the infection or whether it's sus, you know sustained um, contact that's transmitting the virus uh, you know it seems like it's still a real open question how risky it really is for contact in sport it feels to me at the moment from the conversations i'm having with my campuses and our medical advisors that our ability to play sport in the fall is going to have to do with more macro um elements and behavior in our in our society Um, what happens when thousands and thousands of young people come back to our campuses um what's going to happen in terms of the spread of the virus the impact on the health services and the resources there and the early indications are certainly concerning about that when we've seen in communities where we've taken our foot off the pedal, we've opened up society, restaurants, bars, beaches, etc., we see what's happened. As we've started to allow student athletes back, the feedback I'm getting is where there have been many spikes amongst teams. It's not because of what's happening in in the training room or doing the strength and conditioning workouts. It's the socialization that's happening amongst young people that are back on campus and excited and happy to see each other. Um, and we've got challenges as a, as a society, You know, the civil liberties we're used to it in this country. We don't have a culture of mask wearing. I think what we've seen over the last few weeks gives us reason to be concerned that when campuses open up, there could be real spikes and pressures on the healthcare system. From my perspective, that's really the biggest risk to college sports in the fall, be it football, soccer, volleyball, etc. cetera. I'm not really that concerned about the precautions we're gonna be able to take sport by sport, because I think we're really state-of-the-art in that space and it's still quite unclear as to how much transmission risk there is during the actual competition itself.
0: So Larry, yeah. there's been a lot of chatter about, and, and we just talked about this, Um, the imbalance, uh, whether it's funding or facilities or personnel at various levels of Division I, Uh, what are the chances, because you've got a great grasp on your 12 schools, um, that you might look at a scenario, not just in football, but in other sports in the fall and maybe bleeding into the winter, where you only play amongst yourselves, because you know that all those 12 schools would be following the same testing protocol, sanitization protocol, even though they're in different states, versus a school from you know, a different conference, maybe a lower level conference in the non-conference?
1: Yeah, well, look, we've, we've been working toward being able to play full schedules um, in the fall. And as part of that, working on an agreement amongst all the teams we play in non-conference on, on common testing standards. Um, you know, testing before each game so that we could be comfortable with with non-conference play. Having said that, there's been a lot of work done on a conference-only schedule, uh, an abbreviated schedule, a postponed schedule, maybe even a spring schedule. And all those have challenges. Um, But like I said before, I think we're trying to let the, the data and the information drive us. I'm pretty confident sitting here today that we can get to an agreement amongst all the schools we play in football in the fall on a, on a testing standard that would give us trust and confidence. Uh, but there could be other reasons why we just can't play a full season or we can't start at the end of August and, and we look to go to a conference only or some
0: other delayed season. You know, Brian, I, I've heard on one side, hey, let's just take our time, pause. We'll start, you know, sometime in January. The other side is, how do you know January's going to be that much different? Uh, because we don't know what we don't know. With this virus, um, so so from your vantage point as the chief medical officer, what are you hearing in terms of the various, as Larry was saying, the various scenarios uh, of whether we start on time, it starts later, uh, there's a some sort of gap in the middle, or just you know what, let's pause and start everything in the winter.
2: Well, we've certainly had all those conversations, Andy, but. You you know, this virus and this pandemic is is so unpredictable that to say, well, let's start in January, that makes no more or less sense than saying, let's start next June or or let's start now because we don't even know what's going to be uh, the future. And I I think we have to look at the issues that we can control. And within that conceptual framework, we can still plan on a a fall season. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, but I think we should, that's the way we should be going, just like we should be moving in that direction for society. But in doing so, I, I just want to go back to a point that, that, that Larry made, and, and I think it's extremely important for everyone to understand. He talked about personal liberty and individual choice and, 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 and things like that. So when we look at COVID-19, we understand there are four things that absolutely, absolutely work. And mitigating disease spread. One is hand sanitization. The other is cough and sneeze etiquette, and you can you can extend that to to you know making sure when you're yelling or screaming or breathing heavily, you have a certain etiquette. And then the two other issues are physical distancing and universal masking. And Larry's point about the degree to which a high risk exposure occurs in sport, high risk meaning prolonged for more than fifteen minutes, Sport may not be that high risk exposure that everyone is saying it is. It might be, but it might not be. But but let's get to the things that we can control, especially at the campus level. And and I share Larry's view that, you know, when you look at athletics and the four hours or so that we can work with these athletes every day, things are really under very good control and, and, and we can feel good about health and safety. But what's happening the other 20 hours? And that's the concern. And so then you come back to you know personal choice and, and even the masking issue. I mean, there should be no one on a college campus. There should be no one on a sideline who is not masked or or a new version of that is, is a facial shield. And that's not a personal liberty issue. I mean, in New York, I can't drive a car and text at the same time. I can text and be on the phone all I want, but now when I'm driving a car, because if I do that, there's an increased risk that I'm gonna kill someone. And that's the same thing for masking. So, you know, if you don't wanna protect yourself, that's fine, but when you're wearing a mask, you're protecting Andy Katz, you're protecting Larry Scott, you're protecting Brian Hayline. That's a public health issue. So. Let's control what we can. I think we're doing a very good job in athletics and setting up that control. But we really have to worry about the other microcosm, the larger microcosm on the campus itself. And then of course, the grand microcosm of, of society. I mean, we're fundamentally getting this wrong when we aren't doing what we know could work and could get our society open again without this you know, a rapid rise in, in hotspots across the country. Larry, there's a lot of discussion over waivers. Um,
0: You know, at the professional level, we're seeing uh, players opt out and say, you know what, I just don't feel comfortable, whether it's for my safety, my family's safety, Uh, and, you know, they may not, depends on their contract, maybe they don't make the money, whatever, but they have that right. Uh, Where do you stand as to if a college athlete in the Pac-12 says, you know what, there aren't going to be as many students on campus, I don't feel comfortable coming back. How much should that individual's scholarship be protected that they can come back the following year uh, because they just didn't feel comfortable coming and playing under these conditions? As a
1: general principle, you know, uh, our schools unequivocally want to protect and support the student athlete scholarship if they've got a health concern given given the current crisis. You know how that's managed on each of our campuses is up to our campuses. But as a point of principle, uh, student athletes need to know that they're um, protected; their scholarships protected if they've got health and safety concerns. Um, And so, I think that's an active discussion our campuses are having with their student athletes.
0: You know, Larry, I want to go back to this issue of uh, fans that we've discussed on this series. Uh, There was a time, and you know where. We've been discussing no fans, none whatsoever, uh, and then it was different percentages based on the states. And now we're seeing this campaign from governors in the South. If you want college football, you know, put your mask on. Gene Smith, the Ohio State Athletic Director, says, "Buckeye Nation, I want if I want to see you in the in in, in the horseshoe, put your mask on." Um, how realistic is it when we're still wondering if we're going to have a season about having fans?
1: Well, I think. It's- You know, I'd start by um, going back to uh, Brian's comment and underscoring, I think as a society and as um, kind of college sports communities, this is a great social experiment and challenge. I think uh, the ability for us to play college football in the fall and for fans to attend games, I think is gonna be heavily dependent on how our society reacts to this grand challenge that we have and can we adjust our behavior and our sense of social responsibility quickly to a level we haven't seen over the last few weeks. If people keep congregating without masks and we keep having these spreads, we're not gonna be playing college sports this fall and there's gonna be nothing for fans to attend. Um, As a society and in our campus communities, we need a quick pivot and an enhanced sense of responsibility. And that goes down to the team level as well. Um, I think there's been an awakening, a wake up call in just the first few weeks, seeing what's happened on teams uh, when kids come back to campus, starting voluntary workouts, going out, and all of a sudden, you know, there's 20 people from that team being isolated. I think there's a quick education going on. Um, so I I see it, um, uh, I think these next few weeks are gonna be the defining moment. And sports has a very important, role to play, and a great opportunity to provide leadership and role modeling. So it is awesome to see our athletics directors, coaches, our communities coming together trying to lead by example and role model. Uh, if leaders in our community are imploring people to wear masks and uh, follow social distancing and take this seriously, I think then we have a chance.
0: Brian, you, you are heavily involved in the planning of the medically, medical side of the US Open. Uh, We have seen across the globe these exhibition events in tennis to where uh, outside of the Adria tour, there were no fans except for, I think, in the the women's version in in the Czech Republic, there were some fans. Uh, But we saw what went awry um, with the Adria tour, although you could make an argument. It was, to your guys' point, more what happened off the court with the socialization with uh, Novak Djokovic and and, um, Misha Zverev. and those players when they went out clubbing and things of that nature. But if, if the US Open, if we're not in a point where we can have any fans, and they're gonna have the Western Southern Open, then the US Open, and that's the same two weeks when college football is supposed to start at the end of August, if an event like that can't have fans, how could we justify other parts of the country around that t- same Labor Day period having fans in a college football stadium?
2: Well, part of that, Andy, is also the the politics of getting a, a, a huge event like the US Open approved in the state of New York with our governor Cuomo, who has uh, really been a leader in terms of uh, making certain that we're really looking at a phased in approach and, and that we're meeting all of the criteria appropriately, including the number of contact tracers. So, so what we did at, at the US Open and then extending it to the Cincinnati tournament, the Western and Southern Open, so it's a four tournament event, we sent to the governor's office a no fan on site proposal so that was let's call that the the first start and so that was approved and and that actually uh, is now going to be a template for for all professional sports in new york for a no fan on site but when you think about it at, at the us open especially during the second week, there just aren't many players left. And so, you know, you look at the plan for the U.S. Open and it was kind of like, you know, converting uh, the whole U.S. Open site into a playground for the players. And, you know, they they could distance and have fun and and, and so on. And we have to try to control their movements. But, you know, when there were so few players on site, you know i i will just say i have planted the, the 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 seed that you know maybe we can start also looking at how to build fans on site you know if you can protect the inner bubble sometimes it's called tier one of of the athletes and the essential personnel i mean that really is is the perhaps more difficult part of this once you have fans and you separate them from the athletes we we say that they're in the outer bubble and if you can really develop strategies of of the you know controlling the the entrance of of fans and and how they're going to exit that you allow the physical distancing opportunities and that you demand that you're going to be a fan you're going to wear a mask or or a shield i think that can be built into it but you know, honestly, we had to first just secure from the governor's office approval for a no fans on site. So, so that, that was really uh, under his advice as well.
0: Larry, I don't know if you want to add to the since as a former Tennessee executive, yeah. the optics of what we'll see hopefully with no fans in New York, and then the potential that we could see some fans in college football around that same time period. Um,
1: yeah, well, again, I think the fan issue is going to be very localized. Um, my sense is that'll very much be determined by the state and maybe the local county, um, you know, and I won't just be based on medical considerations. I, I'm sure there'll be political and other uh, social uh, differences uh, throughout our country, at least in my conversations with my commissioner colleagues from across the country, there are very different attitudes about, about fans coming. What I'm also noticing is different attitudes, if you don't mind me pivoting a little bit you know we talked about what some of our our, our challenges are and and possible misconceptions and if you all have already talked about this uh forgive me but there seems to be some view that uh, you know working toward herd immunity may be a solution for teams have you all talked about that already
0: no oh, please go ahead okay yeah.
1: um and i, I just want to make sure we cover in this discussion and get brian's view on this um you know when, when i see college students thinking herd immunity, you know, is, is the way forward. Or maybe fans will feel like herd immunity is a way they can safely come to stadium. It runs counter to everything I've, I've heard and seems incredibly dangerous, given there's so much we still don't know uh, about the virus. I know our doctors are saying they want to, anyone that, that shows they've had the virus, uh through the immunity testing antibody testing they want to screen for potential lung issues heart issues still unclear whether it could be long-term damage on top of the spread that it could then create in the community and the strain on our uh, hospitals and resources so it's something i'm very concerned about i'm worried that there's a misconception out there as to whether especially young people should go out and try to, uh, get COVID. uh uh, so that they're protected going forward, and I'd love Brian for you to expand on on, on your views on that.
2: No, I, I think you're spot on, Larry, and 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 it's it's been discouraging. I mean, there have even been herd immunity parties and the like. So. Um, wow. I haven't met one infectious disease expert who thinks that that's a good idea and, and there are many reasons for that. So we've already seen the failure of the herd immunity concept in Sweden when you compare it to its neighboring countries. Its statistics are are, are, are much less favorable. Uh, so that that already has been tried. And then you know uh, expanding on, on on Larry's point, not only the potential complications, um, for our, our young athletes and and really any any adults who, who are uh, contractors, but if you develop COVID and you have no symptoms or you're asymptomatic, we don't even know if that immunity lasts more than a month, two months, three months, especially in an asymptomatic individual. So we know so little about this disease that the idea that you would presuppose that you're going to have you know minimal symptomatology and you're going to have long term protection that's a presupposition that's not justified by any of the evidence that we have so uh, yes no no one that i have spoken with thinks that that's a good idea and and really everyone thinks that that's a potentially highly dangerous idea and and further uh, you're you're putting so many people at risk and and we can't really forget the fact that uh, when when you have uh, uh, really a number of people who are highly infectious and then you have an encounter with a high-risk individual, that high-risk individual really could have a 6 to 10% chance of dying depending on the risk factor. So we really must treat this exceptionally cautiously and herd immunity needs to be stopped. I mean, that should not even be a consideration.
0: Uh, Larry, there's one last thing I want to ask you before we get to our final uh, comment here. And that is... We keep talking about the athletes. Um, what have you heard within your conference of the coaches, the equipment manager, the athletic trainer, um, you know, individuals that certainly, uh, you know, at the highest levels in college football, college basketball. I mean, there are some of these coaches that are high 60s, 70s, technically could be high risk. Uh, how much have you heard that they need to either, eat, either mask up or maybe sit out? Like some professors are going to do where some professors on these campuses are just going to only be doing virtual and not be in person because they may deem themselves high risk because of either underlying health conditions or their age
1: yeah i 'm seeing that as we learn more, I think um, you know approaches for different segments of the population could be could be slightly different, certainly folks that are in high risk uh, category as you suggest might not even want to be involved even with social distancing or wearing masks and all that so i think our campus what i've seen is a very cautious approach uh, in the early days and staff and coaches that don't need to be around for voluntary workouts aren't around they're being kept out of the building they're staying home um, and we'll see as as we learn more but it's it's something that's of uh, of real concern
0: all right so a final comment uh, I, once again, I know we don't know what we don't know. And I am not going to hold this to you know in terms of a drop-dead prediction. But at some point, you just mentioned this earlier, Larry, we're going to have to get to a point where a decision is going to have to be made. We're now into the July 4th holiday weekend. Uh, I've been hearing August 1st as this sort of looming date. Uh, Brian, I'll start with you, and then I'll have you, Larry, have the last word. Uh, what is that indicator, Brian, you're looking for in terms of you know, some sort of decision, at least for college football and some of those other fall sports, but whether or not they will
2: occur. I think one important marker, uh, Andy, is going to be July 13th. So that's the beginning in football of uh, where we switch from voluntary workouts to mandatory on-site. And I say, as, as we move there, and you're going several weeks into then the preseason. I think as we understand what's happening at that point in time, uh, we'll be able to make some important decisions. So I, I, I see that as this really important transition phase.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's an important marker, um, but I've been reluctant, honestly, Andy, to uh, pick a date with my colleagues, to pick a date when we're gonna decide because um, you know, we're, we're watching these macro trends Uh, on how they're impacting our campuses and their policies. So, um, you know, there could be decisions next week that some schools uh, make or some conferences uh, make. I know the Ivy League's planning on announcing a decision they're gonna make next Wednesday. Um, So I don't know if there'll be one date when the world of college sports decides or the world of college football decides. I think we may see some individual decisions start (laughs) to be made in the coming weeks. And then, uh, but I do think it's a matter of the next few weeks that um, I think things will come into more focus. And as I said, I want to underscore, unless we see a change uh, in the trajectory of the spread of the virus and its impact pretty quickly, I think the situation is a lot more perilous than it was a few weeks ago.
0: Ooh, unfortunately, we're gonna end it there. Uh, <laughs> hopefully we can be much more optimistic uh, in the coming weeks. Um, Larry Scott, PAC-12 commissioner, Brian and NCAA chief medical officer. Uh, as always, you can go to NCAA.org slash social series. We've archived all of these over the last four months. We're continuing this every week discussing whether it's COVID-19, social injustice. There's so much to talk about here in College Athletics. We appreciate all your engagement and watching all these important educational, informative conversations we've been having over the last four months. Most importantly, stay safe, everyone, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for watching.